Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Laura Stadler, Chief Commercial Officer and Head of ESG for Frio Valley Infrastructure. Now, Frio Valley Infrastructure's tagline is leading decarbonization through the development of sustainable infrastructure. That could mean a whole lot of different things, but the overarching concept of that, that being sustainable infrastructure, decarbonization, all of that is very exciting. That's what we do this podcast for. So I really want to dig in and see what exactly Frio Valley and what Laura is working on. So I'm going to stop now. I'm going to let Laura get on the mic and start talking about this. Laura, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Frio Valley Infrastructure. Great. And thank you for having me on. I look forward to this. Um, So Frio Valley Infrastructure is really a bridge company. And I say that in the means of in the past few years, my goal has been to bridge traditional energy, traditional oil and gas with new energy, new technology in the green space um, and all these spaces that are really bridging that renewable gap. And so we come in to help commercialize these renewable projects as well as um, connect people with essential professionals that have foundational experience um, in this area. So We are, at the end of the day, a midstream company for renewables. So we like to own and operate pipelines, underground storage, um, facilities, et cetera. We're a fee-for-service company in that regard. And we are working on and focused on uh, CO2, hydrogen, and ammonia. Uh, We've got several projects spanning from West Virginia to Ohio to Texas and Louisiana. Um, but our most exciting one is in West Virginia, which we'll get to in a little bit. That's all very exciting. I want to dive into some of those, but I am curious, what is your background? How did you get into this kind of midstream space for these newer, newer alternative gas fuels? It's a really good question. (laughs) So... I've been in oil and gas throughout my career, and I'd say it was when I was selling wellheads and looking for a new way for them to get into a better or a different market. And I started looking into geothermal drilling, which is when I actually met you when I was doing all my research and found you in a lot of my Google research. And 
we connected about that because of the looking at the existing wells for an equine cycle power structure for natural gas and hydrogen, but the essential of capturing CO2 or utilizing it. And that led me into the hydrogen CO2 space and really helping people see the vertical integration of those two by looking at, I really studied the European Backbone Project to help me understand what was going on in the world. And then bringing those kind of concepts to here and trying to figure out where they fit, um, such as where can you use hydrogen, you know, which parts of the upstream, midstream to downstream, and really helping private equity and other companies, as I consult a lot of companies as well, on looking into where they fit into that picture for hydrogen and CO2. And so I started getting more involved into some larger projects and realizing that we really needed a midstream to really start being this bridge and create the really the backbone to the U.S. for making these things commercialize. Um, found Joel McComas and Scott McClure, and who's got 30 years plus experience in midstream, and we worked together to really get into this, and I opened the doors for energy transition for them, and we've been very successful in doing so. That's very exciting. And I always like that story of seeing what is working and what your role is in whatever space it is, your background being selling wellheads and having that that specific, what seems to be a, a very small part of this larger picture being the oil and gas market, and then trying to find what other opportunities there are with that specific either that specific product or that specific skill set. And it, it's always fun to hear that story of going from, from the wellhead now into midstream and specifically midstream in that CO2, hydrogen, ammonia kind of realm. I, I'm curious, with those, those specific three fuel sources, I have had some people talk about hydrogen and CCS as a whole, not so much ammonia. So... Just real quick, in case anybody hasn't been listening to, sh to the show, can you just break down what exactly the what the difference is in terms of transport for those three different fuels? I guess one, just very quickly, what are they, and then how is how do they transfer differently? What's that midstream component look like? Sure. So there's multiple modes of transport, right? You've got rail, highway, barge. Um, and then you've got the pipeline. So looking at those capabilities, the one that is capable of hitting all of those is ammonia, um, which is why it's becoming more and more viable and why you'll also hear more and more about it in the coming year here in the States in regards to getting more industrial scale hydrogen transported. And I'll explain that in a second. Um, CO2 is also transported by rail, truck, you can do it by barge um, and pipe, which that's been around for quite some time as well, just like ammonia. But hydrogen is not really transported at all by uh, rail, and it is by truck, both gaseous and liquid form. And then it's got the pipeline side of it, which we've got existing pipe on the Gulf Coast, about 1,600 miles of it. So it's been around for quite some time, and it's very well known how to do that. But to get it, what's interesting is 
hydrogen is transported more efficiently with ammonia because it covalently bonds and it's holds three times more hydrogen than hydrogen itself because of how it covalently bonds, which makes it extremely useful for industrial uses, for getting it into the agricultural space. It's got a lot of different utilizations, which makes it um, very economic to look at. I did not know that. I am not a, I'm not a chemist and I, I don't pretend to be one. Is ammonia also a, I would, I would think that ammonia is also safer to transport. Is that a true statement or am I making things up? Um, I would say that there isn't anything that's safe to transport when it comes to chemicals. They all come with their hazards. Um, but what's, so when hydrogen has an issue, it's 14 times lighter than air. So it goes straight up and it's, that's why a lot of people like it on the safety side, but people also relate it to the Hindenburg, which goes into a lot of things, but ammonia is safer in regards to that more people are aware and are trained to transport it and offload it. So that makes it easier, but I would not say it's necessarily safer. Interesting. But I, I'll refrain from that. I'd let you talk to our operations guy, Scott, about that. So, Yes, I, I want to have a whole podcast just talking about ammonia. But so Another part about ammonia is that it was a huge entity here in the U.S. around the World Wars. We used it a lot in the military. And we had quite the ammonia infrastructure at one time. And I don't, don't. I don't remember who it was or what happened exactly, um, but there was a few things that did happen and we started to outsource it. And so we import almost, I think it's 90% of our ammonia. So this is a huge opportunity for the U.S. to gain some strength in the ammonia space again and get more of a hold on the energy and agriculture side. There's a big agricultural component to this, but we could talk for another few hours about that. <laughs> yes, that we could. Now, as we are talking about transport, my, my, um, I guess my viewpoint and where I, where I think the easiest transport comes from is pipelines. But it sounds like since you've been working in this space, can you talk about some of the, the pros and cons of those different transport mechanisms? So I was a big component, big um, promoter of the virtual pipeline for quite some time. And I still am. I think it's very much needed. It's great for interim solutions um, until a pipeline can get built. But you look at, you know, ammonia, hydrogen, they can all be transported and stored different ways. Um, but looking at the transport side, you can do it by rail and you can do it by, um, by pipe and by truck, but you're the truck and rail, you're just not going to get the levels that you need to actually make this truly economic at full scale. So looking at the pipeline is definitely what we're going to have to build. We're going to have to build it if that's what this country wants to do and to really truly fully um, make it a vital component. So looking at the pipeline side as well on the safety, as well as making it efficient is that trucking, we don't have enough truck drivers. We don't have enough trucks. We definitely don't have the capacity to build enough trucks. 
or to rail cars in enough time to make it at the industrial level that's being demanded. So we've got to find ways to start laying this pipe or retrofitting pipe and remediating it to make it more resilient and capable. And that's where, again, going back to the ammonia and hydrogen side, it's we're going to need those we're going to need those right aways very soon if we want to get there. I'm glad that you you bring up these ideas about the difficulty of pipelines and I think that we have seen a lot more of that recently in terms of the the Keystone XL pipeline being shut down and essentially the ban on all new pipelines in the northeast but when I'm thinking about the ability to quickly and easily retrofit existing infrastructure, I would think things like renewable natural gas or hydrogen or ammonia would be the simplest and easiest way to bring in a bring in a new fuel source for existing natural gas heaters in in existing housing developments. But without the pipelines, it's very difficult to actually get there. So from your perspective, getting those right-of-ways, getting the, getting, I guess, more public persona accepting of pipelines, how do we actually get to that point? Well, I'm very passionate about it. We all have to work on changing the narrative of energy. It's no longer oil and gas and solar and wind and all these different segments. It needs to be seen as energy. And today's infrastructure is successful. The energy we use today, it works, it's been safe, it's been reliant. And with that being said, we can still utilize it and expand it and take those next steps to really bring in efficiency by blending. We need to bring in hydrogen as an option. We need to bring in ammonia as an option. We need to bring in the optionality of some of these pipelines that are abandoned and looking at the right-of-ways and utilizing those to expand. And as we're seeing this need, it's a lot of people from both sides, especially on the greener side per se, is seeing why we need pipelines. Because as much as they'll say, well, we're going to build it as a direct use, we're going to put hydrogen right where we need it. Well, you got permitting issues, you got community issues. You've got so many different issues that weren't thought about. And on top of that, it's, well, we can truck it. Well, trucking is not decarbonization necessarily. It's putting lives at risk as well with looking at it, putting it on highway or a local area. So that's again, where pipelines are needed. But a lot of people don't realize the scale and different scales that pipelines can be. A lot of them just view it as 36-inch pipe going all the way down, and then that's not the case. And so helping people understand what it does and what it helps on logistics-wise is huge. And on the safety and environmental side, it's much more environmentally friendly to lay the pipe than to have the trucks going. It's amazing how many trucks are uh, displaced by putting a pipeline down. Hmm. What is that scale? Do you have any numbers on say, how many trucks it would take to supply X number of MCF of gas or MCF of hydrogen? Like, what is that difference there? 
Well, like for one project you're looking at, for, it would be around 50, 70 tons of hydrogen to go about 20 miles. And that's going to take off 200 loads. That's 200 trucks to, to move that. That's and you said that was just 20 miles? Yes. Yeah, so even there, when it comes to transport, it, it, it almost sounds like trucks are almost, in some scenarios, maybe they could be last mile. or They're great for last mile and they're great for really growing this out. But we've got to focus on if we really want to build these hubs out and really want to build this and hit our goals by 2030, we've got to find ways to work together to make these pipelines work and expand these pipelines even if it's to, you know, we've got a huge energy crisis on our hands, especially over in Europe and here in the U.S., we're hitting it left and right. So if there's a way to expand the existing lines or make new lines, but with the intention to say that we're decarbonizing this infrastructure while we remediate and while we remediate it to create that resiliency through the decarbonization efforts. So maybe it's making things electric. Maybe it's using some solar on some different facilities. Um, it's also making it compliant to be a potential pipeline for hydrogen in the future or for RNG, right? And it's making those regulatory steps to promote that. What is that difference in terms of an existing natural gas pipeline or a new natural gas pipeline is probably more appropriate? As you're putting in a new natural gas pipeline, what would be the added cost or or above and beyond metrics that you need to do to make an easier conversion to hydrogen or or make a dual purpose pipeline, if you will? That's that's a good question. <laughs> that's it has so many different variables, and when you're looking at the capex and opex of these different things, um, especially with what's to what capacity are you going to do this, right? So if you're going to do 100, percent and there's a whole other side of this of you know what's the purity of the hydrogen that's going to go through one of these lines? If it's a five nine hydrogen, you're looking at you've got to lay new pipe. Um, and it's going to be more of a high risk. And so that cost is you're looking at new right of ways. You're looking at new pipe. You're looking at special permits. Um, you're adding time to your project as well because of those special permits. And that's going to be, everybody's still trying to figure that out, but we all know it's, you're adding a considerable amount of capital to do that. Yeah, and that's interesting you point out because that's something I haven't thought about is the fact that you would need new right-of-ways because it's a new product that you are, even if you're retrofitting pipes or or right. you would still, yeah. You got to have the spec right for those right-of-ways. And if you don't hit what they're expecting, it's not going to work. So yes, yeah, so the new right-of-ways and you're looking at new areas of interest, you're looking at um, you know, the different states, everybody has a different view on what they want to like, dealing with the landowners. It's there's whole companies just dedicated to that. And there's a lot of pieces to this that I think people forget about and how long those things take. And then they're talking about bringing FERC into hydrogen pipelines, and that's going to be a whole nother topic in itself. Um, 
so yeah, that the regulatory side is what we're really carefully watching. So the regulatory side is is one part of it. I want to go back to public persona and the way that people view these pipelines. If you are if you have a pipeline and you can say this is a 100% low carbon fuel source in some way does that does that help that public perception because one of the big discussions right now is is NIMBY not in my backyard. So you even get pushback on solar panels and wind farms. But what about a simple right of way for a buried pipeline that is low carbon? Is that in any way, does that have better public acceptance than than a, a natural gas pipeline? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, right now, everybody wants something renewable. They get excited for anything green, renewable, ESG, low carbon intensity. Um, it's an exciting topic, but at the end of the day, if you look at like what's going on in the Midwest with the um, CO2 pipeline projects, um, you've got groups like Navigator and Summit that they're dealing with CO2 pipelines and the landowners do not want it. And in Iowa, they've caused quite a, a, a rift there. And no matter what, at the end of the day, you're going to have people that aren't going to want anything in their yard. And that's understandable. And that's what we've dealt with for decades. And we'll just have to keep going around some of those and might have a little bit of a curve to, to some of that pipeline. But on the same note, it's people are realizing that it's needed. And I think it's more so about people getting comfortable with the word pipeline. And it's as simple sometimes of calling it a transport line. And it's amazing how relaxed the conversation stays. And then when you get to the point of explaining how that transport line is going to work and how and how it integrates the different systems, they get excited and you lay it out that it's a pipeline and it's a much easier conversation if you use the word pipeline at the end versus the beginning. So it's really helping educate, changing that narrative um, and providing that education, but it's also the biggest part of this is, and what will be very instrumental to the success of all of this, is how well will people collaborate between traditional energy and new energy? Because if you can't collaborate, you will not be successful or safe in the next five to 10 years. And we've got to make sure that that bridge is there. Yep, absolutely. With that idea, you've mentioned some of the projects that Frio Valley infrastructure is working on. You highlighted West Virginia. Is there one of the projects y'all are working on that is really a shining star moment in terms of that transitionary bridge kind of illustration connecting the two? So the project I'm most excited about is a CCS, CCOS in uh, West Virginia. And it is a aggressively moving project with a strategic partner in the oil and gas world that they're contributing the asset and we're contributing the commercial and capital side. Um, we are very excited about it because of the time span. So it's been producing CO2 for 40 years, the site itself. So taking that with the amount of wells that's been producing the CO2 and natural gas, which is now pretty much depleted, 
we're able to take that existing infrastructure, turn it around to put the CO2 into the wells. So with the 40 years worth of data, it makes it extremely exciting and extremely um, valuable in the permitting process. And so we've got some larger consulting companies like Patel that have helped us with this, and they're very excited as well. Um, we've got multiple CO2 sources in the region that are within 50 miles of this site that can bring in that CO2, and we will do, we'll own and operate the transport, um, store it with a storage fee so that they can get their 45Q credits. Um, but we're also in an interesting spot because West Virginia is, you know, it's a sleeping giant. And I don't even want to say it's sleeping as much as it's been so much of a key component of our industrial, I mean, industrial progress in this country. And so you've got coal, you've got steel, you've got oil and gas, all of the above. It's, you know, you're going back to the Rockefeller and the Carnegie days, right? When they were really expanding these markets. Um, and going back there to where, you know, what it took to build these facilities and seeing some of these facilities that are really the backbone of the, of the country, as well as looking at the Gulf Coast, right? You've got all different types of petrochem and glass and power, and coal, um, all different things that we need, absolutely need. But these guys need help decarbonizing. And they're, it's not as simple as putting just an attachment on. So going in and becoming a solution for them to take their first steps into decarbonization by capturing CO2 is huge for them and for that economy and for those communities to understand that they have a role in this industry and they have a role in the future industry with the decarbonization efforts. So alongside of this, it's if you can't capture the CO2, then you get put on a list for hydrogen. And so looking at the blue and green hydrogen space for West Virginia, we're working with strategic partners on the production side where they can put industrial scale hydrogen in to, for example, to get into ammonia or to also be utilized into the streams for how they're powering the facilities. Because if everyone that a lot of people like to look at a mat and, and say, look at all the CO2 emissions, you know, you can capture these guys and these guys and well, you can't capture everybody's CO2 because the purity of it or the, the stream isn't thick enough. So, for example, you might have a plant, manufacturing plant with 400,000 tons of uh, emissions a year that's reported. Well, they really only have 2% of the CO2 in that stream, and that's not economic to capture. So they're going to be better to look at how do we utilize hydrogen in our operations to help decarbonize at least until a better solution is there to capture more CO2 or that they can retrofit to utilize hydrogen instead and not have any more CO2. So yeah. working with power plants, we're working with coal mines, we're working with oil and gas, we're working with um, ethanol facilities, we're working with a multitude. And so it's been fascinating talking to the different groups and how we can help them really be part of this and be a fast moving part of it as well. Yeah, I I love that idea of looking at a facility and trying to figure out what the best opportunity is for decarbonization because I think that example you gave is is spot on with there are so many of these emitters and they have maybe large amounts of emissions but from a from a diluted CO2 standpoint it just doesn't make sense to capture it. 
But in the scenario you set out, why not, if there's a way to retrofit the incoming energy, that being your fuel source, then you could reduce that 2% to 05 or 0% even, if there is a way that you can fully bring in a low carbon fuel source. And that's a that's a situation where now you have reduced those emissions, but it's not in the way that most people think about that being we have to we have to change we have to catch catch the CO2 as opposed to let's change the front end of the system and let's just not emit CO2. Right. And then you've got to have those options out. And I like having that optionality. And the other part to all of this is that and people a lot of people don't realize this is that CO2 is also a much needed resource in these industrial clusters for the different types of manufacturing and petrochem units, um, getting it down to CO and also the food and beverage market that's needing a desperate need for a resilient supply of CO2. So looking at responsibly sourced CO2, looking at the, that optionality is also important. But my favorite part about all of this is that being on my side is that everybody that I meet, I'm constantly, you know, I've got you down. I'm going to put you down in, in my notebook because eventually there's going to be somebody that I'm going to have to connect you to. It might be that you have the right technology. You know, I work with multiple hydrogen groups so that I can talk to one group and say, hey, you know what? You've got asphalt. Um, I think that you should talk to your X group because they make hydrogen out of X and they can make carbon black. And that would be essential to what you're currently doing. And no, you shouldn't look at the other ones because that's not going to help you as much as this one. Or it's, you know, looking at, you know, blue is going to work great for you or green is going to work better for you because you have a great supply of water and you've got renewable electricity and you're at a megawatt size that's better than, you know, you want to do, if you don't have 500 megawatts of green power, I need to start looking at on the blue side. If you don't have CCS to store your CO2, we should look at the green side. So it's been pretty fascinating um, balancing that and connecting people. And it's a constant collaborative and that collaborative is essential to everything that we do. Yep. I've been thinking about this the entire time we've been talking. So I'm just going to ask the name Frio Valley infrastructure makes me think of the Frio Valley in Texas, but y'all are kind of working all over the country I'm assuming you're probably international as well. Can you explain a little bit about the name and, and yeah. So the name comes uh, really from our CEO, Joel McComas. He loves the Frio Valley and he wanted to name the company Frio Valley and we went with it. So it had a nice ring to it. It's a relaxing area that is very environmentally friendly um, so we felt like it was a good name and a good fit for us. Uh, and then we chose infrastructure because it's a much nicer term than pipeline for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I like the name. Okay. So with that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. So that first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Ooh. Um, 
That's a hard question. So my favorite book of all time is The Great Oil Dorado by, I think it's Hildred Heldegard or something. And it is about the oil boom in Pennsylvania. And it's written by a woman back in like the 50s. And it is fascinating to hear the stories of the different families that were part of it and the different, they had songs, they had poems about the different things about what people thought about oil. You know, it came from whales or it came from something else. I mean, all kinds of things. It was fascinating to read and I always keep it on my desk to remind me of where this energy industry really comes from and, and how far we have come um, and how we've continued to build upon these these stories as well. Uh, the other book is, I have to say, How the World Really Works. Um, it is a very, it's a great book that is very, um, it's very energy agnostic. So it, it looks at it from a non-emotional side. It really kind of puts some things out there that people don't think about. So it allows you to kind of understand why, certain things move the way it does or, you know, that how industries are segmented and it opens your eyes to also how little there is. Uh, those are the, my two favorites right now. Those sound like good recommendations and I will definitely have to add them to my reading list. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Well, I think it depends on the perception of net zero as it continues to change over time. Um, it is going to be as a society in this globalized world, we're going to be fighting it for the rest of our lives because there's so much energy poverty out there that can't afford renewable power. And right now we're capable of making that jump, but this world is, we're going to be constantly trying to figure this out. And I think as long as the top producing countries continue to push forward and keep helping the poverty stricken countries with the energy, there's definitely hope that we can get there one day. But I think the best thing is, is that we work towards these small steps and these goals to get decarbonizing specific industries, at least in our in our country. I like that answer. And I think it, it is a pragmatic answer that we always, all of us think about is what is that goal of net zero? Is that something that is a personal question or a U.S. centric or national question? Or is that, are we really going to, how are we going to do that as a, as a world? Right. And I think it is a, it's always a moving goalpost almost. It doesn't feel like it is, but as we add on more energy, that ultimately makes what it takes to get to net zero different. So right. it's it's a tricky well, it's a tricky goal to hit. Teaching, I think the biggest thing is education, teaching these children at young ages of what the possibilities are, but also in valuing what all different types of energy does. And I think you know, we've gotten a lot better about what we're using and our daily habits of trying to be more environmentally friendly. And I think those types of things are going to be essential. And that should be a goal 
absolutely be a goal for people is how do we live more sustainably? You know, I think somebody just came out with like the Tide soap that now is like a, it just dissolves into it rather than the pods. And that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And so things like that are, I think are definitely ones that we can strive for, but we've got to figure out ways that you know, right now, oil and gas, oil, hydrocarbons are needed to make everything that we have touch and everything we have. And in order to make the turbines in order to make the solar panels. And until we find a different resource to make things and make what we need to live every day and to create the industry and the economies of size that we have, we don't have that yet. And so we've got to find ways to work with what we do have with hydrocarbons and decarbonize existing industry and work on ways to scale that existing industry to continue to be a, to play a role in this globalized world and not fall behind. Mm. Yep. That's a very good point. So the last question is now you get to ask me a question. I want to know when we're going to do a geothermal project. So what's new in the geothermal world and, and how's your family? (laughs) Yeah. So family's doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, as far as the, the geothermal side of it, there, there's a lot going on in geothermal. There's a lot of hype. And I think that I am going to a lot of conferences right now. And the reason I'm going to a lot of conferences right now is because every single one has some type of geothermal section or geothermal day where everybody's talking about geothermal and everybody keeps asking, Hey, are, are you going to be there? Are you going to be talking about something? Let's get together and have these conversations. And I swear it is basically every single one of the, the major industry associations are now having some type of discussion on geothermal. So when are we going to have that first project in terms of first project being in the Gulf Coast or in in on the East Coast, basically outside of traditional geothermal areas like the Western U.S. and the Basin and Range? That I, I don't think I can give an answer. Not that I don't have my my personal estimates, but just because it, it is, um, I think there's, there's so many that I feel like any day now you could hear an announcement and there's so many announcements right now that any day you could hear of a, a well that is producing geothermal in the Gulf coast. And I think all of that to say, I, I know there's been one, announcement for the Gulf Coast. There's a a company called Criterion Energy Partners. They made an announcement about a month ago about a 10,000 acre lease in in the Gulf Coast near Houston. So that one, that's very exciting. And there's actually next week, I think when this podcast, right after this podcast comes out, I'll be down in Houston for a conference. And there's uh, a geothermal day and a geothermal happy hour that there's going to be probably a dozen different companies represented all 
kind of in the startup space, probably less than five to 10 years old. And then there's going to be probably a dozen service companies that have all been in the traditional oil and gas space for 50 plus years that are also getting excited about geothermal. So all of that to say, it's a very exciting time and keep watching the news because it will happen soon. (laughs) Good. I'm, I loved all the geothermal conversations and getting into those projects. I thought that I thought it was all fascinating. I do still believe in it that it can it can work and be economic. Um, I just hope to I hope you get to be on one of those projects soon because you're pretty pretty much a walking Google on geothermal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the kind words and thank you for joining me today, Laura. If there is anything that you want to say before we sign off, go ahead. No, I'm. thank you for having me and I appreciate it. I look forward to, to more conversations about energy and how we can all work together. Sounds good. Well, thank you again for joining me and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and let me know that you're enjoying it by leaving a review. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with OGGN on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.